Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 8, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. And you might see a resemblance in the name of our website and the name of the podcast. Um, Both of them are long names. Of course, I had a much shorter name for this podcast when we first started it. I was going to call it The Jesus-Centered Life. And my soon-to-be brilliant friend, uh, the Becky Nader, said, no, that's that's not actually a very good title, although it is the title of my book. So, yeah, now that I think about it, <laughs> that makes me feel queasy. But she said, that's not a good title for the podcast. She said, let's call it the, the phrase that you say all the time. Let's call it paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. And I thought, oh, okay, Becky, maybe you know best. Well, turns out Becky does know best. It's a great title. I love the title of this podcast. And if you want to find out more about what we're doing, you would go to JesusCenteredLife.com and PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. I'm Rick. I'm the author of The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and a soon-to-be-releasing new book called Spiritual Grit coming out in April. And as it turns out, we had a little surprise today because I was going to do my second of three interviews with Michael Kiefer on these uh, this series of three little books that he wrote that are uh, kind of address some of the basics of our life following Jesus. We, last week we did How Do I Pray, and kind of extracted some of the themes from that practical little book that Michael wrote. And we were going to do today, How Do I Read the Bible, and then the, the week after that, um, How Do I Know God's Will. Those are the titles of the three books. But Michael got sick yesterday, and then we had to figure out what are we going to do. And the Becky Nader, who is now off into the wild blue yonder on her new adventure in life, had this great idea for an episode that we were going to do with her in March. And I love this idea so much that I turned it into a small group experience a couple weeks ago. And so I called her up and I said, hey, what if we didn't do this in March? What if we did it, like, tomorrow? <laughs> and she said yes. So we're here. The special surprise today is the Becky Needers here. So hi, hi. Becky. Now, she's going to sound like she's not really here, because, of course, she's she's participating from parts unknown. She's uh, she's not in a windowless cabin in the forest, but she's not in, she's not in our podcast recording room, so she's going to sound a little different today. But I'm so grateful that she uh, agreed to come, come on today, and uh, I'm so excited about what we're going to talk about today. So, Becky, first of all, maybe you could give a little bit of an update on what's happening with you before we dive into this. Well, my life is a little bit different right now um, than it was before. I went from basically working on a team of like, you know, hundreds of people to basically working by myself all day every day with my two pugs. But I I am looking into doing some co-working space because I can't be by myself all the time. I had a conference call with someone in Turkey yesterday, so that's a little bit different than my life was. It, was, it wasn't. It wasn't a conference call with someone eating turkey. They actually no. live in Turkey. Yep, but live on American time while living in Turkey. So that was unusual. 
and basically everything in my life every day is something new. So it's just brand new every single day. So, but I am still sitting here drinking kombucha and I've been cooking a lot. So some things really haven't changed. You know, I, I drank some kombucha once and I thought, um, did I, did I just drink fermented vomit? That's what I thought immediately after I drank the kombucha. I looked on the ingredients list in the back to find out if it was actually made out of fermented vomit. But I guess it's no. not if you're drinking it. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's fermented something, isn't it? It's alive. It's a live culture. It's oh, yeah. Alive. That's kind of a it's kind of a non-starter for me to drink something that's alive. But <laughs> to each his own, Becky. I, I mean, you know. I I understand that it probably is a delicacy in your world. So it is. Yeah. So today we've been uh, focusing on some of the basics of a life of following Jesus and connected to the kind of the wider theme for the year, which is exploring topics related to spiritual grit. What is the core strength we need to live our lives in in every way? And where do we get that core strength from? And the premise of the, the book, Spiritual Grit, is that we all have a little shallow bucket of grit, but we need a deeper well, and that well we get access to through our intimate relationship with Jesus. So part of this is, well, how do we live out in, our, in an everyday way the basic uh, strengths that we need to live a faithful life with Jesus, an intimate life with Jesus, where... We can face and overcome difficult things and rise to the challenges that we have. So I think of all of the basics, the one thing that's kind of overlooked as we don't really think of it as a basic, but it absolutely is the foundation for all of the basics, is belief. Belief is the most basic of the basics. And I'm not talking about like mere belief, because we know that about nine out of ten of Americans say that they believe in God. And that's not the kind of belief I'm talking about, necessarily. The belief I'm talking about is a subset of that belief in God. The belief I'm talking about is a, a belief in the goodness of Jesus' heart. And that's not easy, considering the kind of dark stuff that swirls around in our world. Today, I am still reeling from the horrific massacre of 17 young people at a high school in southern Florida yesterday. And uh, in fact, on my way up here today. I normally listen to NPR on my way up, on my long commute up here, and I couldn't do it today. My soul said no, and Jesus said, "I have you need to do something else today, because I just felt overshadowed by sorrow today because of this. My own daughter was involved in a school shooting. I was involved back in the day in the response to the Columbine shootings. Uh, hours after the shooting, I was invited in to, to participate in helping that community recover. So this brought back a lot of just sadness to me, and I realized I could not just listen to NPR for an hour today. So I turned on my old-school jazz station, and I cranked it up in my car. And wow, the impact was profound on me, because the beauty of that music reset and recalibrated me, gave me a, a regenerated perspective again. It's what Jesus knew that I needed today. I needed to be reminded of beauty in the midst of all of this darkness. I needed to be reminded of his beautiful presence and the beauty that he creates in the world to kind of snag me out of this narrative that was spiraling down. So he had to remind me of the, of the bigger narrative that I'm a part of and that that narrative is full of his beauty. And it recalibrated me today. So in this kind of world, 
where it's easy to forget that um, God is good and God is present, even in the darkest situations, uh, because we can't make sense of these dark situations. It's good to explore what we actually believe about Jesus. And one way to do that is to, uh, it's interesting to pay attention to what we pray about. So I ran across this uh, survey that Lifeway Research did not too long ago. They, they did two things. They were trying to explore what people pray about. The first set of questions was about what, what pe- people typically pray for, and then they asked them, have you ever specifically prayed for one of these things? So what people typically pray for, and Becky, I, I would love for you to kind of pay attention to these as we go through these, because I want to ask you, why do you think we pray about the things we do as we go through these? So what people typically pray for, um, first of all, is family or friends. 82% say that they, they pray for family or friends. Right after that is my own problems and difficulties. About 74% of people pray for their own problems and difficulties. Right after that is they pray for good things that have recently occurred. So that is more of a praise prayer, which is kind of encouraging. And then number four is my own sin, and that's 42%. And uh, then the, the rounding out the top five is people in natural disasters. So when a horrific thing happens, like a natural disaster or like a school shooting that happened yesterday, people feel led to pray. So those are the top five categories of what people pray for, family or friends, my own problems and difficulties, good things that have recently occurred, my own sin, and people in natural disasters or trauma. Then they asked him, have you ever prayed for these things specifically? And I think this is an interesting list, too. The number one on that list is people who mistreat you. So 41% have prayed about people who mistreat them. Um, So we don't know exactly what they're praying (laughs) relative to the people who mistreated them. But number two right behind that is your enemies at 37%. So they, they pray for their enemies, and again, we don't know what sort of prayer that is, whether it's praying in the way Jesus said to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, or if it's a different kind of prayer. Uh, but number three on this list is winning the lottery. One-fifth of all Americans who say that they pray have prayed to win the lottery. And then right after that, um, this is an interesting one, again, one out of five uh, Americans who say that they pray have prayed for success in something that they put almost no effort into. <laughs> That's like praying for winning the lottery, by the way. You know, praying for success in something you put no effort into is like you know money dropping out of the sky, like the lottery is. And let's do the the fifth one to round out the top five. They pray. Fifteen uh, percent of people say that they've prayed that no one will find out a bad thing that they've done, <laughs> which is interesting that you're praying to God who sees everything that no one would find out the bad thing that you've done. So it's a little kind of a snapshot of how we approach our relationship with God. When we have direct connection with Him, the, the, the most obvious example of that is when we pray, and these are the things that we talk about or ask for when we approach God in relationship, and they also then reflect what we think about God and what we think about ourselves. These topics reflect what we think about God, because these are the things that we approach Him about. So, Becky, what's your explanation for why people emphasize these kinds of things in prayer? What, how do you process this list? Well, because we want to believe that we are praying to a good God who wants to do good things for us, and 
of course, we expect that he'll do them in the way that we want him to do them. So when we talk about good, we, we have a plan for our life, and we think that it's a good plan, and we highly expect for him to support that plan and to, to follow through to protect that plan and to follow through and make all of the things that are necessary for that plan to work happen. I do think it was interesting for those of you who are following along in the Jesus-Centered Bible reading plan this year, today's reading was Luke chapter 6, and Luke chapter 6 covers praying for our enemies, actually, and I thought it was interesting that 82% of people pray for our family and friends, so we pray for those people who already love us and who we love, Um, but then when they asked how many people prayed for our enemies, it went down to 37%, so Hmm. less than of those people. Today's reading was very much an emphasis on, you know, are you loving your enemies? I'm asking you to do that, and if you obey me, then you're building a foundation um, for your life, that that, that's a good life. Um, And that's very human, that's very human, isn't it? That's just a natural reaction that we would more naturally pray for the people that uh, we love than the people that are harmful to us or painful to us. That's natural. When you think about the the kind of the macro list of things here, I think one of the embedded things that if you step back from this, you realize, well, we mostly pay, pray about problems. We pray about our problems or other people's problems, for the most part. There's a couple other, of... Ex- other people's problems that, uh, you know, the people that we love problems. Right. We pray for the people who love us and who we love and we want good things for them, and so we intervene on behalf of them for, yeah. for them. And it's, what's interesting about that is then, if you think about our conversation with Jesus as like an orbit, um, what is it orbiting around? It's mostly orbiting around problems. That's why we yeah. approach him, is we have a problem, or another person who we care about has a problem, and so we're bringing that problem to him, with hopes that it will turn out well, or that we have an idea of how we'd like to like it to turn out. But at the hub of that orbit is a problem, and it, that's also human, because we have problems we don't know what to do with, and we can't really—sometimes we don't feel like we have the ability or the wherewithal to solve them on our own, and that's when we're kind of driven to Jesus. That's why showing up on this list when we pray for people in natural disasters or school violence like we experienced yesterday— that we, we pray because we know we can't directly do anything about this. We need the help of Jesus to intervene. So we approach him about this huge problem that we don't have control over. And so pr- problem solving is a kind of, I think, a major theme in our, in our prayers. And if you think about, so just for a moment, shift this conversation from this is how we relate to God to if we were to relate to someone like our spouse this way, that most of our communication would be centered around problems. You know, sometimes when couples slowly lose their sense of uh, genuine enjoyment of each other, it's because their conversations have descended into problem solving all the time. And there's a, you know, obvious reasons for that. If you're if you're if you have kids and in, in a difficult economic situation and kids that have issues uh, and in a culture that is full of challenges to us, it makes sense that that your conversation, your intimate conversation, might devolve into problem-solving on a daily basis. But that actually kills the relationship. 
in the end, you know, it, it, if it's limited to just problem solving. And so I think it's interesting for us to explore maybe a story of Jesus encountering people who had a problem, and what he did about the problem, and how people reacted to what he did about the problem. Since so much of our communication is problem-based, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to slow down and pay attention to Jesus. What does he do when people bring to him a problem, and what happens with the people when they've dealt with that, when he's dealt with that problem? And Becky, I asked you, as we read this, to kind of overlay your own journey, your own story with this. That um, Becky actually suggested this this story to pursue because she was finding something powerfully meaningful in this encounter that was speaking to her in her own trajectory. So I'm going to read the story, and then Becky and I will talk about how our own stories weave into this story. So this is from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. It's a, it's a story that you don't often hear in church, <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a kind of a bizarre story, and it's a longer story, too, which I really love these longer encounters in Scripture that Jesus has, because there's so much rich detail in them. So we're going to read about Jesus' encounter with, we only know his name as the Gerasene demoniac, <laughs> and it's in Mark, uh, starting in Mark uh, chapter 5, verse 1, and uh, I'll go ahead and read through this, and then Becky and I will talk about it. So they had arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones." Not exactly a guy you invite to your dinner party. So, when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. And with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. Well, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Well, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran, and people rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid." Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, No, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. 
So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So kind of an epic story and a kind of a twist that you don't expect. It's not, it doesn't happen in every story that Jesus does something miraculous to set free a captive, and the people around say, get out of here, <laughs> you're freaking us out. So it's an interesting and unusual story. And clearly, the, this man who was possessed by legion, this legion of demons, was a problem for people in the surrounding area. They repeatedly tried to restrain him. They couldn't. He was scary. They had learned to sort of acclimate themselves to this scary, monstrous man living in caves. They, they, I'm sure they, they talked to their kids about staying away from where that man frequented because he was so scary. I am sure that they worried at night if this guy would creep up to their home, and since no one could subdue him, they were vulnerable and at risk. So this was a big problem in this area, that this man was so uncontrollable. So when you when we think about what the response to Jesus' solution to the problem, uh, how why did the—Becky, as you think about this, why do you think the people responded the way they did to Jesus? This story really um, hit me hard when I was reading it. This was just um, it was two days after my last day at group, um, and I was having my time with the Lord, and and I read this story, and I I was struck by the fact that that just like Rick said, this man had been a menace to this town. Um, he had been, like he said, he probably was really scary. He may have done scary things. Um, he may have even hurt people. Um, at some point during, you know, children or, you know, he was a menace and he was a problem and they couldn't, they couldn't contain the problem. And so Jesus comes in and he takes care of the problem. But as he's taking care of the problem, he creates a new problem for them. And that new problem is that he takes away something that was probably tied to the town's livelihood. Um, a herd of pigs was probably a representation of food security, money. And it was a massive herd of pigs, 2,000 pigs. Yeah, I mean, this is, it could have been the town's entire livelihood. That could have been what this town depended on um, to feed their children and take care of their lives. And so he takes care of one problem and he creates an entire new problem. But what struck me as incredible was he created this was a miracle this is one of the miracles of jesus that happened they witnessed a miracle and so what what struck me is why didn't they just ask for what they lost back why did they turn away and just reject jesus and and tell him to leave when they knew he could perform that level of a miracle why didn't they just get on their knees and say can you help us get what we lost back and it really, um, it, it, it made me think of people I know who have been through incredible tragedies in their life, like the one that I just went through. Um, but, you know, some of those tragedies could be a major betrayal from a spouse or a business partner, um, facing infertility, a loss of a child or someone that you love, maybe your wife died or your husband died young and it was too soon. 
And I was I, I was just with somebody on the this weekend who had a horrible experience um, successively at, at a number of churches where her husband had been a staff member, and the last experience was the most painful. And so she, I was just with her for the first time in a while over the weekend, and she is still very bitter and angry about what happened to her husband. And uh, since this last episode happened about four years ago, she's refused to go to church. And so I was with her in a situation where, unexpectedly, she was she ended up listening to a sermon uh, over the weekend, and she felt kind of hoodwinked into that and was really mad that she had been exposed to the church again, because she's just so full of anger and pain and hurt over what happened still that she hasn't recovered from it. But these are the kinds of these are the kinds of experiences like the shooting that happened where you say, how could God have allowed that to happen? Right. How could he be a good God to me and have allowed this to happen? Why couldn't he have handled this in a different way? Um, in my circumstance, it would be very easy for me to say, you know, God, why didn't you just heal my husband? Why mm-hmm. didn't you just intervene on my behalf and change the circumstance so that I didn't have to lose everything in my life? And these are the kinds of things that you hear them, and when people say, the next thing that they say is, and then I walked away from God, and I'm mad, and I'm not going back, you understand, because you're like, well, yeah, I mean, of course you're mad at God. This is a horrible circumstance. But what... What really struck me, and it's not in the story, it's, it's what isn't in the story. Hmm. It's, well, why didn't you just ask for it back? If he's the all-powerful God and you just witnessed his power, then why didn't you just say, Jesus, thank you for getting rid of this. However, if we don't have these pigs, we won't be able to feed our village, and we need your help now. Why? Why would we turn away? Why wouldn't we just turn right back? How, 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 Becky, how do you answer your own question? Why do you think they didn't ask? I think that it's easier for us to get wrapped up in blaming, and it's easier for us to get wrapped up in feeling hopeless and um, and to be lost in self pity than to to do the thing that is harder which is to believe that God can can give it back to you. And when we're talking about belief, that's what they, they lacked. They, they didn't believe that he could do that, and so they had to turn him away. Yeah, it's interesting in this story, the only one who accurately recognized the goodness of Jesus was the man who'd been set free from a legion of demons. And to, to, to kind of sink into that man's reality, we, we can't imagine— what it would be like to be controlled by evil demonic forces who have hijacked your life and made you scary to everyone, including yourself. This man lived alone, obviously, and was locked in the prison of his own misery all the time. And to see that all, the only thing that you produce in the people around you is fear and repulsion, what would it be like to be set free from that, I, th- I think it must feel like you had a 150-pound backpack on that somebody suddenly took off your back and said, you're never going to wear this again. The freedom, almost like you could fly, and that the sense that this man had uh, for what Jesus had done for him 
he was so grateful he was ready to just follow Jesus wherever he was going. And instead, Jesus said, no, I want you to tell people about what's happened to you. And he didn't argue with Jesus about this. He just turned around and started going from village to village, telling people about the goodness of Jesus and what he had done for him. So this man had tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus. He believed in the heart of Jesus. And yet all around him were people who uh, did not believe in the goodness of Jesus, or they would have done exactly what you said, Becky. And I thought your question was so profound that, that the real, the real uh, profound aspect of this story is what's not said, it's what's not done. That could they have approached Jesus and said, Jesus, with such great power, could you help us now in the problem that we're facing? Because now we don't have a, any way to, uh, to earn a living for our families. And instead, they, they begged him to leave. They rejected him. And of course, Jesus does not force himself on us. He does not say, no, 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 I'm going to stay and I'm going to help you out. He, he doesn't force the solution onto them. He abides by their, their will in this situation, and he leaves. And they're left without any way of knowing—and uh, you can imagine in the years following the way this narrative plays out, and how this whole experience of this man's great release from captivity becomes one of the worst things that's ever happened to our village, is when this man Jesus came here and, and killed off our entire livelihood and how that story would get told and retold. And yet, the thing that's sitting there, if we believed in the beauty and goodness of your heart, we would simply ask you to restore what's been lost. How, how do you translate this, Becky, into your own life right now? How is, this, how, how is this understanding of this story impacted how you're seeing your own story right now? Well, in the last episode that we were together, um, which was titled Finding Life After Lament, and I would have titled Letting Everything Die. <laughs> I, was, I was vetoed. Um, uh, I talked about how I had to walk away from everything. Um, I had to lose everything, and it was, it was good for me to do that. I had to do that because if the good God who is looking out for me was looking down and he, he knew, he knew that I was not safe. He knew that I had been, um, damaged and that the only way forward was to leave everything behind. And the reality of that is it, it sounds exciting. And, you know, people hear, Oh, you're leaving, you've put everything in storage and you're just, you know, hitting the, the road. And it sounds so exciting, but it's so much harder than that. And it feels like loss. It feels like grief. And it's hard work to walk in a place where you're trusting and believing in God every second of every day. And it's, it would be so much easier to have just stayed and clung to the things that made me feel comfortable and it could have been so much easier to get lost in my own self-pity, and it would have probably been um, expected of, of course, you would feel that way. Um, it is way harder. It is way harder to walk out on your own and to trust that God's going to take care of you and to have to wait on that um, and, and to, to see him show up. And it's not always in the way that we expect for it to be, but it's a better life, and he is a good 
God who who knows better. He he's known better all along. Yeah, I, I love that what you're what you're describing there, and it kind of it kind of does go back to the foundational aspect here of what does belief mean. You mentioned that it's hard work to to do this right now, and you're really saying it's hard work to believe. And yeah. and what that means is it's hard work to believe in the goodness of Jesus, and this really does get back to the this whole idea of what spiritual grit is at its foundation is the very thing the Gerasene demoniac, the man released from this captivity, discovered, which is he had tasted and seen the goodness in the heart of Jesus, so much so that he was willing to give up his life now and follow Jesus wherever he was going, because he had seen how good Jesus' heart was. In the end, this is the foundation for our grit, for the hard work that we must do going forward. It's fueled by our deep belief in the goodness of Jesus. That's what tips the scales for us ever so slightly inside. It tips us, tips that scales from retreating from our reality and protecting ourselves and even retreating from God to leaning into him in the midst of whatever it is we're facing. In Spiritual Grit, the book, I have a little story in there that I just love because it's so profound. It's a story of uh, a man who is a cellist for... Um, the, the uh, uh, I think it was the Sarajevo Opera that he was the cellist for. But during the war, the Serbian War, when Sarajevo was under assault and under siege, this beautiful city that had been an Olympic city only uh, uh, a few years before, beautiful metropolitan city, was slowly being disintegrated by the surrounding armies who were shelling it every day and destroying it step by step, and so many civilians were killed under the assault of Sarajevo over the space of uh, many, many months that, that the people there were under assault. And in the midst of it, there, there was uh, a day when, at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a bakery in Sarajevo had somehow scrounged together enough flour to make uh, many loaves of bread, fresh loaves of bread. And so when the word got out that this bakery had fresh loaves of bread, there was a long line of people waiting to get a loaf of bread. And those assaulting the city shelled that line and uh, obliterated the people waiting in line for bread. And just down the street from where this happened, this, this man, um, the cellist for the Sarajevo Opera, lived. And when he saw what had happened, something snapped in him, and he said, no longer am I giving in to this narrative of darkness and retreating into the safety of my home. So he brought his cello out, found one of the shell craters near where this tragedy happened, set up his little stool and started playing classical music in the crater. He did this every day at four o'clock to remember when the line of people were shelled. And he, uh, he did this for months and months. Um, he, he was in danger of his life every single day, out there in the open, playing his cello at the same time every day. In fact, he, he was never injured, but at one point when he took a break from his cello and left it in the crater for a minute, um, a shell hit his cello with a direct hit and blew it up. But aside from that, this man did this every day at four o'clock, and in a way, it was, it, it's, what, it's what you might call a protest of beauty, where the man said, I am going to lean into beauty and embrace beauty in the midst of this instead of do what my natural inclination has been all along. And uh, he became a lightning rod for the people in Sarajevo, a source of hope and 
kind of pointing to a different narrative to live in, that we are going to live, lean into beauty instead of away from it in the midst of this horror. And I think that's part of what this is all about for us, is how do we lean into beauty instead of away from it in the midst of our stuff? And that's some of what I hear in you. This is the hard work of living in our own situation is, will we lean into beauty or not? When I tell you that story, Becky, and I know you've read the book, so it's just reminding you of the story, but how does how does that man's act correspond to what you're feeling or living out in your own story right now? Do you find any connection with him in your own story? Yeah, it's, it's hard to get up and keep um, putting my attention where it needs to go every day because there's a lot to get done, and I have a swirling amount of um, things that I'm chasing after and um, doors that I'm knocking on and trying to figure out where the road is for my life right now. And it's really, I, I have, I'm a person who likes to just get stuff done. And um, it could be tempting to get up every morning and just say, I got to plow through, I've got to do all this by myself. And I'm finding myself every day going, you know what, you've got to go back to being more dependent in this season. You can't, you can't keep relying on your own strengths because you weren't brought here by yourself. You were brought here by Jesus and he is the one who has a plan in a way. And if you, if you don't stop and listen to that and you don't stop and pay attention to, to the roads he's showing you, then you're going to just get lost on your own path again. And you're going to get um, depressed and you're going to get angry and um, that's not what this season is about. Hmm. This season is about dependence. And so it's it's something that you have to fight to keep doing every single day. Yeah, I, I had an email exchange with a close friend of mine earlier this week. I was with him over the weekend, and he had uh, been through some really, really traumatic, hard experiences in his life. And we were we had been talking over the weekend, and one of the questions I asked him was immediately after this traumatic thing that happened to you happened, what did you do to try to navigate your life immediately after that? Because it's hard for me to imagine how you summon the strength sometimes to just keep going in the aftermath of what you've been through. And you and Becky, you and I have had these kinds of conversations too about what do you do in the immediate aftermath of something that is really traumatic. And so I'd asked him this question, and when we were face-to-face, he... He, he kind of answered it, but then he followed the next day with an email and said, you know, I didn't really answer that very well, because in part because I don't feel like I've recovered from that. It was four years ago it had happened, and I don't really feel like I recovered from it, so I'm not sure I can talk about what has led me on a path to recovery. And I responded and said, I don't think it's really true. The, 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 this word recovery has a kind of a false promise in it that says, somehow I'll be back to the way I was before the trauma happened. That's what recovery is. But that's not true. That thing that happened, whatever it is, is now part of your story. It's embedded there forever. It's part of your narrative, and you're going to have to deal with it the rest of your life. What I said to him was, I, I think recovery isn't really the, the, the path that, that Jesus has for us. It's the fact that once we know and understand the beauty of his heart by leaning into him and paying better attention to him, 
when we know and understand his heart, we recognize that he is always and everywhere weaving beauty into ugly, weaving light into darkness. There's never a time when he is not trying to make art out of the ugly things that happen to us in our life or the ugly things that surround our lives. There's never a moment when he's not trying to weave weave something beautiful into those things to make them a work of art. And so for me, the work of belief is to believe in the in the heart of the one who is always making beauty out of ugly, and to be have a determined stance that I know what I know about his heart, and therefore my belief is a reminder to me all the time, I don't understand what he's doing right now, I don't like what he's doing right now, but I do understand that all he does is weave beauty into ugly, and I can trust that. And that, for me, is the work of belief, to trust the rhythm in the heart of Jesus, that he will bring beauty into ugly. And I've said this before uh, around uh, one of the themes of Spiritual Grit, the book, is that hard equals good. (laughs) And uh, uh, I had a friend of mine who was going through something really hard who looked at me and said, you know, I've heard you say that, but I really, I could do without the hard right now. I wish the hard was over. And I responded to her and said, yeah, hard is good. In, in, when it's uh, given over to Jesus, but hard is good eventually. <laughs> hard isn't always good in the moment. What we believe is that in the, in the Jesus of eventually, that he is determined and relentless about working beauty, like kneading beauty into our loaf of bread. Like that's, that's, the, uh, that's the leaven in the bread, is the beauty of Jesus, who's just working it into the loaf of our life. And that eventually, he's gonna he's gonna bake he's gonna bake that loaf, and it's going to be delicious because of what he's doing. But the key word is eventually. <laughs> um, it doesn't happen like flipping on a light a light switch. So Becky, as we kind of wind down here, I'm wondering if, if for for people that are kind of in, a, in the same similar place as you, not your circumstances, but in a similar place. If you were sitting across the table from them having coffee right now, what's one or two things that you would say, you know, in the immediate aftermath of your trauma, here's what I'm, I think I'm learning that's important for me right now that might be helpful for you too. Um, what, what would you say to that person? I think there's probably two different people in this scenario, and one of them is a person who wants to keep chasing after Jesus during this time. And then there's the other one who wants to push Jesus away during Mm. this time. Mm. And so the first question I would ask is, which one are you? And be honest with yourself. It's okay. He knows. And you can be honest with him about which one you are. And if you're the one who's leaning into Jesus, I would just say, keep asking for what you lost back. But don't expect for it to be returned in the in the same exact way that it was before. Um, you know, he didn't have to make pigs appear for him to replace what was lost in that story. He could have just provided in a completely different way. Um, sometimes his provision is different than the one that we had in mind. And so we have to try and see the way that he's trying to restore our lives. Um, But if you're the one, or maybe you are um, married to the one, or your, you know, sibling is the one, or your really good friend is the one 
who just said, you know what, I'm done with you, Jesus. Get out of my town. I don't want you here anymore. I would probably pursue them and ask them how that's going for them and remind them that they can ask him to give it back what they lost and that he can restore the, the hurt that they're feeling, the loss that they're feeling, and that he can make it beautiful again, but they have to, they have to ask for it back. And they have to believe that he can work a miracle in that situation. Um, and it just, it saddens me to think that these kinds of circumstances will just make people walk completely away from God. And that's not the way that it has to be. Yeah, I, I love what you said there, that it it's also that Jesus is not surprised by that reaction either, that he understands yeah. that this is what happens to us sometimes, and and what we have hope in is not how relentless we are in pursuing him, it's how relentless he is in pursuing us. He will not give up. So if you're in this place right now where you've given up on him, let me just remind you, he hasn't given up on you. He's relentless. He will show you his heart if you will let him. One of the things I think about that was from our last uh, podcast together, Becky, is when we were talking about uh, Jesus... Um, oh, actually, it was from last week's podcast that I did with Michael, where we were talking about prayer and how Jesus taught people to pray, and we call it the Lord's Prayer. But then right after that, he told this little bizarro story of... A, uh, a man who comes to his friend's house in the middle of the night at a totally inappropriate hour, knocking on the door, asking for three loaves of bread to borrow. And the man in the house is already in bed, and he yells out, I'm already in bed, the, door, the house is locked up, I'm not coming down, it's too late, You're, you shouldn't have come this late. But the man keeps knocking, and eventually the man inside gets out of bed, comes down, and gives him his three loaves of bread. And Jesus tells the story, and he says, yeah, that's what prayer's like. Uh, you know, in the kingdom of God, that's that's what's really honored. And then Jesus says uh, these two words that I think are just extraordinary. He says, "In the kingdom of God, shameless persistence is honored." So, so gang, if you're in the place of the villagers who've seen Jesus move, but there's been unintended consequences. There's a lot that's wrong now. There's a lot that's been lost, and you're tempted to just say, "Go away, Jesus." Um, what I think what Becky's encouraging us to do here is to instead knock on the door with shameless persistence based on our belief in the heart of Jesus. Just keep knocking. It's so funny that Jesus tells this funny story that, that he says the, the guy inside the house may not come down to the door because of friendship, but he will come because of shameless persistence. <laughs> that is a funny story Jesus is telling here, but he's trying to highlight, hey, your shameless persistence shows your trust in my heart in a bizarro way. You believe I'm going to come down and open that door for you, and I love that. So do it. <laughs> Shamelessly persist. I wrote on the little whiteboard that's on our refrigerator at home, it's called Do Hard Things. Um, it's one of the practices that I've adopted since I was writing Spiritual Grit, it's an everyday thing that we do now in our family where we list each person's name and we list one hard thing they're, they're going to be doing th that week so that we elevate 
um, hard things as good things, and we elevate them so we can support each other. Well, I wrote for this week three loaves of bread next to my name on that whiteboard, and it's just me recognizing that the hard thing I need to do this week is knock on his door and ask for three loaves of bread and keep knocking with shameless persistence. So I invite all of you to be shamelessly persistent with Jesus as an expression of your belief in his heart. Anything, any last word here, Becky, before we um, close it off for today? No, it was great. It was great being with you guys. Oh, he loved having you come back, and we'll uh, be checking in with Becky along the way on her adventures. Um, can't wait to see how life in, unfolds in front of her, and looking forward to ch- checking back with her every now and then. So, hey, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, again, you can find out more information about everything we talked about here today and with some further details on the Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com website. You can find our, our, our podcast there, and it's season three, episode eight is the one you've just listened to. And don't forget these practical guides we've mentioned, uh, um, uh, how to pray, how to know God's will, and how to read the Bible. They, they release in late February. They're currently available for pre-order on Amazon.com and Group.com, so, uh, and we'll continue with our uh, interviews with Michael Kiefer. Uh, next week we'll be exploring how to read the Bible as a uh, enjoyable thing, not a should. <laughs> so that's what we'll be exploring next week. So again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.